These are the yays of our lives. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. Lovely Yayborhood, welcome to the second segment of our second miniseries for the year, showcasing some incredible women in science, thanks to L'Oreal's for Women in Science Fellowship Program. While our running miniseries wasn't sequential and could be listened to in any order, I'd recommend going back to last week's episode for the full introduction to the program and the landscape before digging into this one. A stat that definitely deserves another mention, however, is that only 28% of researchers today are women, with less than 20% making up the most senior leadership positions, and only 3% of scientific Nobel Prizes have been awarded to women. So, L'Oreal, a company brought to life by scientists a hundred years ago, are dedicated to changing those statistics and have awarded five outstanding women in the industries broadly referred to as STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and medicine, a fellowship to help them further their groundbreaking research. One of the biggest challenges for women in these areas is a lack of exposure to career paths and role models, so L'Oreal has also created a Girls in Science program to highlight for school students how diverse, dynamic and deeply impactful pathways in science can be. And since the in-person events for this Girls in Science program unfortunately weren't able to go ahead, I am so very honoured that these CZA episodes will take their place and be distributed to young schoolgirls who are just starting to think about their their own ways to yay, so that a new generation of young scientists might see a future for themselves in these industries. Our first two guests last week absolutely bowled me over. Dr. Madoch Shebani was an Iranian battery engineer working on cleaner alternatives to lithium batteries. And Dr. Kirsty Nash was a marine biologist looking at the relationship between changing nutrient production from fisheries and coral reefs on one hand and micronutrient deficiencies in humans when they consume those products on the other. This week, our three mini-interviews focus more on medical breakthroughs in the areas of epilepsy, neuroscience, cardiovascular health, and anxiety. First up, we have Dr. Pip Caroli, who is doing incredible work tracking the unique cycles of epilepsy with wearable and mobile devices. Pip has been working to track people's individual seizure cycles, leading to new breakthroughs in seizure forecasting technology, which is now being piloted in a world-first mobile and wearable app to tell people when they have a higher or lower chance of having a seizure. Absolutely groundbreaking. I'll let Pip tell you the rest herself. I'm not quite sure I even understood all of it, but I hope you find her as fascinating as I do. Dr. Caroli, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you here today. It's such a privilege. And I was just saying on one of the other recordings that if I had heard from women like you earlier in my career, things could have been very different. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. Well, to begin with, you know, at CZA, we're fascinated by what we call path yays, which is how you get into your industry, particularly given that there are 
you know, probably more barriers for women getting into science and technology than there are for men. But what I'd love to start with is for you to give us a bit of a layperson's explanation of what you're working on, the landscape that you're currently in and its impact for the world so we can get a lay of the land and understand, you know, what your specialty is and and be as blown away as I have been by all the wonderful things that you're doing. So talk to us about the work you're doing now and then we'll kind of work backwards from there. Sure. Yeah. So I am currently a senior research fellow in biomedical engineering. My work uses digital health. So that means mobile apps and devices like wearables, also implantable devices to improve the lives for people with epilepsy. Epilepsy is a massive problem worldwide. I think it's uh, one of the most common and certainly most serious neurological conditions. It affects people of all ages. And what really goes on for people is they have seizures at times that they uh, can't predict and that's very dangerous and very disruptive to their lives. So it can mean they're unable to drive or, or exercise, ride a bike, all sorts of things we take for granted can become really dangerous, even life-threatening. And my work is about or my research is around understanding when seizures are going to happen and to provide a forecast, like a weather forecast, to tell people when they're at a higher or lower chance of having a seizure and just plan their lives around that and give them more certainty. Oh, my gosh. I can imagine that would be an absolute game changer for people who have been at the mercy of these unpredictable seizures in their life to be able to have some kind of certainty or a heads up before anything dangerous happens. It was just so fascinating to read your work in tracking people's seizure cycles and, you know, that the recurrence might be three weeks or eight days or, you know, whatever the kind of forecasting is that and now it's being piloted in in a world-first app, like a wearable app. And yeah. does that tell people when they have like a higher or lower chance? Are there like windows? And I think it's through a company called SIA. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So I work with an industry partner, SIA, they're involved in the epilepsy diagnostic space, but they also, with Sierra, I developed the mobile app that we're using as a forecasting tool and a management app. And the way it works, you hit the nail on the head when you said it's about tracking people's cycles. And for a long time, people thought seizures were completely random, no way to predict them. They just sort of strike out of the blue. But one of our key discoveries in this area was that actually there are these really interesting rhythms that underlie when people have go into a high risk state or also go into a low risk state. And it's very individual for different people. So one person might have sort of every couple of weeks for someone else, it might be 10 days for someone else, it might be a month. And it's a little bit like how we all have circadian rhythms that most people have heard about. It affects when we sleep and wake, it affects everything in our body really but we're discovering these longer rhythms that also affect when people are going to have seizures and that's what we're tracking when we talk about tracking people's risk or tracking their cycles we're tracking that individual rhythm that is affecting their seizures and showing that to them in the app oh my gosh that just blows my mind (laughs) I think one of the the most exciting things about this sort of industry and not just in medical technology but just science in general is that the impact of your work is so measurable. Like when we say, you know, there's a breakthrough, it's an actual global breakthrough in something that's never happened before because so often in business, you know, my advice to people is you don't have to reinvent the wheel, like don't worry about creating something brand new. But in science, you guys are 
literally creating brand new things that fill a gap that have a huge impact on people's quality of life. So I get goosebumps just hearing these stories. (laughs) So doing it day to day must be enormously satisfying. Can you talk to us about how you got into this area? Because I've also seen a bit of a common theme has been that, like I mentioned, if I'd heard from women like you, I might've had a, a different perception of a career in science or understood the, you know, all the different areas you could go into rather than just always being in a lab or always being, you know, with beakers and and all that kind of thing. Like how did you actually, you know, originally become interested in the world of science? How did that lead into medical technology? What did you do at uni? Like what was your pathway into where you are today? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's quite hard to sort of pinpoint because looking back, it feels like just a series of happy accidents, but I think it mostly comes down to the people I met along the way. So, you know, right back in high school, I was sort of fortunate to have a really great maths teacher. So I, I really enjoyed maths because of her. So I got into into maths. And I think if you asked me in high school what my dream job was, it was to be a writer for the, you know, New Scientist or Cosmos or something because I loved writing but I was interested in science. Oh, my gosh, that's awesome. <laughs> I love so, New Scientist. <laughs> yeah. So that didn't happen but, Yet. I, yeah, I gravitated towards that kind of engineering, science degree at university and then in my final year project at university just happened to meet or happened to get involved with a project with some neurologists who were working on um, a system that monitored brainwaves. Wow. And then that led into my PhD. I think I chose to do a PhD at the time because there weren't that many jobs for biomedical engineers. We were sort of, it was the first time that degree had been offered at the university. Wow. So it was all still a bit new. It's it's quite a different scene now in Melbourne and, and in Australia, but at the time it was a bit new. So I got into research because there wasn't jobs in the in the field I was interested in <laughs> but it, it turned out I was great at research and I loved it and I'm really really privileged now to be able to do the academic pure blue sky discovery research but have these great industry partners that actually are able to translate things into devices and, and sort of enable me to work directly with patients and help people with epilepsy. It's so interesting that you use the word happy accident because I think that's something that, I mean, I use that every single time I describe my own journey, but in every guest in every industry we've had, really, I think when you're younger, you have this perception that there's a really linear pathway to career X, Y, and Z rather than you know, science is the broadest category and what you fall into, it doesn't have to be because you knew when you were younger, you had epilepsy and you wanted to solve your problem or your mum had epilepsy and you wanted to solve the gap. You know, you can fall into things at any time in your life through the most random pathways, but find something you never knew that could fascinate you so much. Yeah, absolutely. And the people who you meet often really sort of nudge your pathway as well. And I think that's why science is so exciting because there seems to be like, I mean, neurology in itself is like then narrowing it down into neurology of epilepsy. Like there's just so many ways you can move and apply your skills. And I certainly didn't understand that, you know, when I was first deciding what kind of career path I would take. I just genuinely thought I'd be in a lab coat with beakers, although that would also be kind of fun. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't realize you could be, you know, making apps and stuff like that. That's so cool. (laughs) No, that's right. I See, I was quite interested in medicine and I didn't realize there was another way to work in a medical space and not 
be a doctor, which, which didn't really appeal to me. But biomedical engineering is perfect, really. It's absolutely, I think, a lot of medicine now more than people realize actually involves engineers and devices and, and signal processing and a lot of things that are not traditional medicine. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that, you know, your love for science has been fostered so much to the point where your daughter is named after Ada Lovelace, who was a mathematician recognized as the first computer programmer. And I think it's really exciting that young women in this generation won't necessarily face the not only barriers, but just lack of visibility of female scientists or engineers or medical kind of researchers. They just, I think, see themselves or see their possible futures in other women around them rather than having to imagine it. So what are some of the barriers that you have faced along the way? Has it been harder as a woman moving into science? Are there any tips or or strategies for young women aspiring to a career in science that you would like to pass on? Yeah, I guess it's hard to sort of see the challenges when you're in them. (laughs) I mean, the biggest thing is just visibility. So I've been really fortunate that I have had a lot of great women role models in science, the head of our department, the head of our school. There's a lot of really trailblazing women in research and academia around me, which is great. Back in school, I think I was only one of two girls in our physics class and that's sort of something that you hear commonly. You feel like an outsider and then you feel less confident to pursue that pathway. Yeah, just visibility is really important and I hope I I can be that role model for other girls uh, looking to start out a pathway. I think a tip I would give for people is it's really important to have mentors and we often seek out women in STEM as our mentors, but I think don't underestimate the importance of having male mentors in your space as well. Mm. I've received some of the best career advice from male colleagues, especially when it comes to things like applying for a promotion or uh, things like that. So yeah, just diversity in your mentors is really important. I think that's such great advice in any industry, but particularly in areas that are traditionally you know, women are still in the minority because you do tend to see feminism or helping with the female movement as only turning to other women. But there are male feminists in the workplace who will be incredibly necessary to generate change also. So I think that's really valuable advice. What about the fact that, you know, you've had a child in your career? Has motherhood been a difficult, like taking a break from research in a in a field that's very cutting edge and like now, 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 you know, how did you find that as a woman? It's scary, especially because, you know, I'm thinking about having more children and it's sort of <laughs> how do you time it? it? It's really hard to take time out of research and get off the conference circuit for a while and you get quite nervous about losing relevance and just the networking opportunities and, and dropping behind. Weirdly enough, because the birth of Ada coincided with a global pandemic, (laughs) everyone was in that lockdown boat where they're missing out on a lot of the conferences and networking opportunities. And I have had pretty good support with getting back to work again, something the pandemic's helped with because of all the remote working that's going on. So I've yeah, actually being able to take some meetings from home with my daughter and things like that. Be interested to see how it how it plays out with subsequent children, but it definitely makes me nervous. And I sort of have an eye out for grants that 
support women getting back into work after starting a family or there's specific grants where you can hire a postdoc and things to help you while you're on maternity leave to just keep things turning over and and keep your publications going and that sort of thing. So that's just forward planning like that. And I think that's really exciting too because I I don't imagine that's been around, you know, or maybe a generation ago that women having children and taking a break in their science careers would have been able to access grants like that. And and even this fellowship with L'Oreal, I mean, this is quite new, but quite revolutionary for the industry for, you know, a beauty company to be investing in women in science and then investing in sharing your knowledge with girls in science at the school age level. I think that's so important. So what's the fellowship allowed you to do in your research that you might not have been able to do otherwise? Yeah, well, the fellowship, I mean, a call out for how amazing it is to have research funding that you can use to support childcare if that's what you need. That's not sort of always the case, but it's really important to support women. Mm. With the fellowship, I'll be using it directly for research costs. And so we, we touched on before how we're using people's individual cycles of seizure risk in forecasting devices. I would really like to go to the next level and see why these cycles are happening. So the fellowship's going to support a whole range of different imaging techniques. So we're taking samples from people, blood samples, saliva samples, and and trying to understand why. Why are there these unusual, mysterious long-term rhythms affecting your seizures? And that I think that will take us to the next step in, in helping treat epilepsy. Oh, my gosh, that's so fascinating. Day-to-day, what does your research actually look like? Is it a lot of time with patients studying them? Is it then a lot of collating? Like how is your day kind of split up when you're in a breakthrough area like this? Well, people who are not in the field would be surprised to know there is a lot of writing and reading. (laughs) Yeah, we're constantly constantly writing publications and trying to tell the story, writing funding applications. So there's a lot of, yeah, definitely a lot of writing. I spend most of my time when I'm actually doing science, computer programming. <laughs> so doing uh, the science, yep. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah r- writing code to analyze large amounts of data and look at it in new and interesting ways and try and find out which results are important, trying to improve our forecasting techniques and work out how we can uh, get that out there into the app. And the more I advance in my career, the more time I spend mentoring and um, managing other people. I I have PhD students and master's students and other people, other postdocs who I'm directly responsible for. So lots of management as you you move forward. But it's really great with sort of discussions that are all about discovery and, and trying to work out new ways to do things. So it's really sort of feels quite creative as well. It sounds like it's quite diverse. Like there's just so many different parts of your brain that are being drawn on at different times of the day for different tasks, which is for some people, I mean, that's ideal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It can be scary as well because it's very sort of, you have to be quite self-motivated. That's especially true when you're doing a PhD. It's your project, you're setting the cadence and, and you're setting the goals. There's often you know, things go wrong in research and it's just not working out. You're going up down dead ends and that can be stressful because there's no obvious path or there's no obvious right answer. But that also works great for some people as well. 
Did, what was your initial interest in epilepsy? Like, did you actually have any friends or family who suffered from the condition or was it literally just because it was an emerging area where you had the skills? I actually did have a couple of seizures when I was a child. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, I mean, that can happen. I grew out of it. Luckily it was like a childhood epilepsy, I suppose. But I, I don't know if that was the reason I was quite, I was quite young, but I was, you know, interested a bit in the process of going into hospital and having my brainwaves measured and <laughs> <laughs> understanding that. I think I mentioned my, my engineering project involved measuring brainwaves from people for a completely different application. Actually, it was to measure their brainwaves and try and use them to control a computer cursor. So equally oh cool and sci-fi. <laughs> but that was my in to people who understood the signals, those brain signals, which are really, really the main sort of signal that we use to diagnose epilepsy and manage people's seizures. So it was, yeah, I, I think I just met some fantastic people who offered me the opportunity to work as a research assistant and then do a PhD and it just grew from there. Wow, that is so fascinating. And again, I think to any, you know, young girls who are fascinated in science now, like the area that you might end up working in might not have a connection to you necessarily or might not even be an area of science that's currently being worked on like the distance between finishing school and getting into uni and then like it's so fast moving you just you could end up in any area and then be incredibly specialized in it without kind of realizing earlier in your life yeah and I still feel that there's an opportunity to then move into completely different fields as well so with these rhythms that we're starting to see in people's seizures we're able to track them with a whole lot of other kinds of signals as well. So we've started to use wearables to track people's heart rate and skin temperature, for instance, and that affects their seizure risk as well. So that these signals are relevant, but it means we're also starting to talk to people in cardiology, for instance, to um, understand that a little bit better. And then you can see how you can just jump into a completely new field just again, by a happy accident, you, you discovered something in the data that led you in a different direction. For kind of school-age girls, in terms of getting exposure to these areas, like I, I feel like unless you get access to someone like yourself to hear about the way that you got into it and the different methodologies of measuring heart responses, how would they go about finding out more about these areas in between conventional science or conventional engineering like is there work experience that you can do or how did you go about meeting new people that's a tough one I, I mean I think sort of podcasts are great there's lots of science podcasts that are targeted to you know the newest and, and greatest discovery I think especially for girls starting out now in school now my advice would be to look for those kind of maker spaces that like girls who code, those kind of meetup groups mm. where they, they are very entry level for people learning to code and tinker with devices. So, you know, there's sort of nothing to stop someone from taking their own Fitbit smartwatch and deciding to reverse engineer it and understand their data and do some analysis on it and just that kind of playfulness with data and coding, I think is a really great way to see what 
piques your interest and mm. there's a lot of coding in research now. There's a lot of technology. So it, it's a great skill to have in your pocket when you're going down that STEM pathway. Yeah, now I'm like, I want to code. I just want to like <laughs> drop everything and go into <laughs> biomedical engineering. <laughs> Are there any other really cool emerging areas of discovery or breakthroughs in the biomedical engineering area that you think would be worth following if you're interested or even just like I I love listening to these podcasts and finding out what people are doing in the world? Like what what's really getting you excited to watch at the moment? I, f- I feel like I've been, you know, I've got a one-year-old, so I feel like I've been a little bit <laughs> under a rock in the, in the scientific what's happening world. It's the wrong the time to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but the having a pandemic has sort of kicked off a lot of really innovative like home health technology. Yeah. So things that are cheap and accessible and don't require like specialists going into a hospital to collect that sort of data or run that Mm. test and that's something that people can do at home without exposing them to the hospital. I think that's a really cool area. I I was attended the university's Endeavour Expo. That's the sort of final year engineering master's students display their projects that they've been working on all year. And I was blown away to see how many sort of interesting diagnostic wearables are coming out now. Yeah, really, really cool things. Things like for monitoring fetal health as well during pregnancy. That was really interesting to me because that was something I found quite stressful having a pregnancy in a pandemic. So there was some cool tech there. And yeah, also just amazing the students were able to develop this tech without you know, during lockdown, they were doing things like prototyping with Lego and Play-Doh and <laughs> over Zoom. It was very impressive. Oh, that is so cool. I Like, this just makes me so excited. I want to be a scientist now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping that other people listening are getting as excited as I am because that stuff is so interesting. Well, it's never too late. Right? Right? If we do this interview again in five years, maybe I'll be like, have become a biomedical engineer somehow. <laughs> is there a quote or kind of mantra that you found has helped you along the way? I'm a big fan of motivational quotes. So is there one that has guided you? Okay. Well, I mean, this is not a motivational quote per se, but this was the quote that I included at the start of my thesis, for example. So it is something that is, I find very central to my research. It's actually the first verse of a poem by Emily Dickinson. I'll just read it. The brain is wider than the sky, for put them side by side, the one the other will contain with ease and you beside. And that for someone doing research into the brain and epilepsy, it sort of reminds me how vast and mysterious the brain still is. And I think that was, was sort of good good reminder to have throughout my PhD and now in my research and I think having a, po- a quote, sorry, by a writer, by a poet rather than a scientist is also a nice reminder that it's really important to sort of get inspired by all all sorts of fields, by, you know, writers and artists and philosophers as well as, as, well as other scientists. But mm. it's just a reminder of how creative you still are in science. I can imagine you'd also get 
pretty siloed and that's the same in any industry of like scientists hanging out with scientists and talking about science all the time. Like you do really need distance, I think, from anything that you love doing, even if it's enjoyable and you don't want to take a break. I mean, the concept of play in, you know, the CZA podcast is such a big thing because I don't think like I think our incentives to rest or slow down or take breaks, particularly in areas that are so fast paced, the incentive gets smaller and smaller, but actually you make bigger discoveries when you you get a bit of distance. Speaking of, are there any books or shows or movies, we call them recommendations, that don't have to be related to science, in fact, better if they're not, that just made you really happy recently or that made you joyful? (laughs) I kind of think if they made you forget what time it is, then yep. they're really making you happy. Okay. Well, I, I knew this question was coming and I was thinking, oh, maybe I'll think of something that makes me look really sophisticated. <laughs> but I'm just going to give you the really daggy down-to-earth answer. Yes, that's <laughs> the one I want. <laughs> so I recently reread the Over-Newton Chronicles by Isabel Carmody <gasps> in full and that's it's a amazing. huge series. <laughs> it just made me so happy. It brought me back to childhood. I had been revisiting a lot of fantasy novels during the pandemic, just like beautiful escapism. Yeah. (laughs) And I looked it up and I realized the last book had finally come out just a couple of years ago. It was sort of a series that started in the eighties or even before. And you kept thinking, all right, the next book's the last book, but no, there's just one more. And they were (gasps) coming out every five or 10 years. And so it was finally a complete series and I read it all for the first time and that was very exciting, (laughs) made me very happy. I love that so much. I went back and read and watched all of the Harry Potters from the start. Like I kind of feel like there are times in your life when you want really sophisticated ancient wisdom and like let's go back and reflect on Socrates and all that, you know, philosophy on life, but most of the time we're all just trying to survive in between working <laughs> and, and you know, doing stuff. So escapism is amazing. Like I yeah. think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to be productive even in our leisure time. But one of the things I've been doing, which is kind of similar to that, is I've been reading Daniel Silver. He's got this Israeli crime-fighting kind of Mossad dude. Yeah. Oh, he's not even in the Mossad, but ex-Special Forces anyway. But he's also a paint restorer, so there's a lot of art history in there and he travels all over the world. He's got all these amazing books and I've been reading them like nothing else. But then I just ordered – there's like 40 books or something and I've been reading from 20 onwards and I just yeah. ordered like <laughs> 1 to 20 or 1 to 19. I'm like, oh, my God, it's explaining all, like, the connections I just missed from starting halfway through. It's so good. That'll keep you busy for a while. Ages. So good. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining. I am so inspired and I can't wait to see what you continue to do in this industry and, and the med tech that comes thanks to your incredible research. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks, Sarah. I said this last time, but I've had this after every single guest in this series. I just want to spend more time around Pip and absorb some of her intelligence, by osmosis, hopefully. (laughs) There was a meme going around recently about how some jobs involve saving lives or fundamentally improving people's quality of life through an invention, and mine involves sending an email, and sometimes I can't even manage that by myself. So I'm getting those feels right now for these incredible women. And I hope it's hitting home for you as much as it is for me how infinitely diverse the pathways in science can 
can be with so many areas of specialization and it seems you can really fall into niche areas you never quite expected, but it's not set in stone either. And our next guest is equally as fascinating, also making waves in the medical field in an area that, again, I don't imagine that you set out in high school to become this particular kind of scientist, but it's amazing that she did, Dr. Jiawen Li. Jiawen grew up in the historical region of China, Xi'an, famous for its terracotta warriors. She went on to study at the University of California, Irvine, before moving to Australia, where she now works as a lecturer and researcher leading the intravascular imaging program at the University of Adelaide. With over 20 million people worldwide each year experiencing acute coronary syndrome, including heart attack, atherosclerotic coronary artery disease, or CAD, is the most common cause of death in middle and high income countries worldwide. Although significant progress has been made in cardiovascular research, every hour more than 500 individuals experience heart attacks without even knowing they are at risk. This is because our understanding of atherosclerotic plaque progression is still insufficient and cardiologists do not currently have the tools to diagnose high-risk patients before their plaques become life-threatening. And you will learn all about atherosclerotic plaques shortly. (laughs) Jarwin will lead an internationally significant project to create the the world's thinnest cellular resolution intravascular imaging catheter, otherwise known as a very, very tiny camera, which will be achieved by using novel 3D printed micro optics. I don't even understand any of that, but how fascinating. What a woman I hope you guys enjoy. Jawen or Dr. Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here. It is so lovely to have you. I'm so thrilled to be able to pick your brains on the incredible work that you're doing and why it's just so wonderful to have you as part of For Women in Science this year. I thought to start off, because I can barely say or pronounce what you do, let alone actually understand what it is, (laughs) could you explain to us what atherosclerotic coronary artery disease is and what you actually do now before we jump into the story of how you got there. Yes. So I currently do is basically developing higher sized 3D printed camera, like light camera, but not real camera that can go inside blood vessel and find out who are at the highest risk of heart attack. And the reason we're doing this is because, as you mentioned, coronary artery disease is a huge problem worldwide. It's actually the world leading cause of death. And each year, there are more than 20 million people experiencing life threatening events like heart attack. And in Australia alone, every one hour, there are more than 500 people experiencing heart attack without even knowing they were at risk. So it's a huge problem for people. And actually, for my family, we have a family history of coronary artery disease, cardiovascular disease. And so it's really something that I hope we can do something so that we can find out what are the highest risk and also optimize treatment plan for those patients. Oh my gosh. I had no idea. It sounds like one of those conditions that is so common in society and like, you know, the statistics on it being the most common cause of death in middle and high income countries, but that so many of us don't know that. Mm -hmm. It's just crazy. Yeah. And like you said, like, and we don't know that. And some people present to emergency room some others i heard actually there is also studies about this like 20 percent of people didn't even reach hospital and they died before that so it's scary and it's it's something that if we could do something it's it could be a huge benefit for our society wow oh my gosh what a, an incredibly impactful area of work to to find yourself in so as i understand it 
This is the world's thinnest intravascular imaging. So it's like a micro OCT, yes. like a camera, as you mentioned. It's an imaging catheter that you can insert into the... Yes, it's something like easier way to understand. It's like a camera. But instead of what we get with our phone, like a bigger camera, we actually have a small, tiny one printing onto the tip of a optical fiber, which is size of human hair. So <gasps> the hair size, but actually printing onto there. And there's a really cool technology. Actually, it's all our German collaborator invent this one. So we are really fortunate to actually working with the best people around the world to actually developing this technology. And so my job is basically bring the engineering part and the medical part working closely together and working with our clinical cardiologists, basically those who actually putting this device into patients. Wow. And so once you do, you can get those images. Did you say that it shows a risk for heart attack or heart events and so you can kind of prevent it with lifestyle choices or yes yes so at this stage it's not for everyone like not because it's still minimally invasive it needs to go inside the blood vessel so it's only targeting those who are already with some risk in this disease and then we're looking into how we can actually put it in so and de design the best treatment plan for those patients because some of them they may need putting a stand into the artery some of them may not need that because some of them may actually not benefiting from putting a stand uh, especially this is the case that one thing I didn't know this before I get into this field. I was mainly like engineering has mindset, only thinking about how to build small cameras. But then when I get <laughs> into field, I heard that actually once we are reaching 60s, most of us are going to have this plug, atherotic plug. It's like a fatty deposit in our artery. But not all of them are dangerous. Only a very small amount of them are actually dangerous. And that's why this camera is really important because it can actually go in to find out which is a high-risk version, which is the one that's going to cause heart attack. And for those who actually unfortunately having that, then we give them the relatively aggressive treatment, like putting a stand, reopen up the artery. But if they don't have this one, there's no need to actually over-treating those patients. It's not only cost a lot of money, but also for those patients, they may actually experience complications from this treatment, the side effects from the treatment. Oh my gosh. Well, I'd never even heard of atherosclerotic plaque progression before this, but it's so interesting that there's like, you know, a lot of progress in cardiovascular research generally, but this area seems, you know, still quite misunderstood. So it's so exciting that you're working together with such an amazing team of people to get some real results that will be life-changing. But also, I think given that on this show in particular, we're really fascinated by pathways mm -hmm. or pathways, yes. as I like to call them. <laughs> you mentioned that you sort of started off with a much more logistical engineering approach to this kind of problem about just creating the camera. And I think one of the coolest things to hear about from other people is how they stumbled into different areas yeah. that they never expected. So can you give us a quick rundown of your whole journey into the world of science? What did you, you know, did you always want to be an engineer? How did you kind of get here? It's, yeah, it's wonderful to actually hear other people's story. And for me, it's actually really stumbling along the way and trying to figure out what's going on. So I think, I guess I should probably say I started from actually my dad told me engineering is really easy to find job. <laughs> As all Asian parents do, they actually looking into which is an opportunity for their kids to get into like a well-paid job or go to university. But I actually feel like that 
it's a beautiful coincidence that I get into this engineering field. And what then ends up happening was I found actually it gave me the really powerful tool that how can I actually develop the right device for clinician. Instead of me directly being working as a medical doctor, this actually allowed me to actually solve all those unmet problems on my needs. So I think it's also really interesting to hear that there is such a medical application of engineering because often you think of engineering and you think of construction or you think of buildings. You don't think of tiny little cameras and going into veins. So did you start out in engineering thinking that you would go straight into medical engineering or how did your kind of entry into this particular area happen? Was it during your time at university or was it once you got into the workforce? Yeah, so I started actually growing that passion for science when I was even like a little kid because my parents are actually one biologist, the other one is a medical doctor. So they have been actually giving me this kind of opportunity and grow that curiosity inside me. So I've always been a very curious person, like really interested to know like why this thing can work like that, how this even been developed and why this disease can actually evolve in this way. But the more I work with my parents, I'll like observe how they work. I realize actually I like the, what they're doing, like actually very useful for the society and helping people and saving lives. But I don't really like the day to day of what medical doctor does. Like I'm not that type of like very careful and follow the guideline person. I'm more like more outside <laughs> the box. So if I become a doctor, I will be in really big trouble for the hospital. So I'm like, why not I do something different? And then when my dad was like, Oh, engineering is where you can actually find usually find a job, a well paid job, then I'm like, Okay, I'll just give it a go and see how it works. At the beginning I wasn't sure whether it's actually my thing, but then I found this niche area which is called biomedical engineering it's basically engineering but also you can use it for medical applications it's like combining my passions together like what i'm good at doing but also something that i'm really interested in and then that brings all beautifully together oh my gosh you are the perfect perfect person to come on this show because that's everything about seize the a is the idea of combining what you love and what you're good at and just finding the middle ground because i think when we graduate we think there's like four jobs you know doc Doctor, teacher, pharmacist, engineer, or oh, you, you were doing lawyer, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But there's so many gray areas in between that combine all the different ways that people's brains work. And I love that you found that beautiful intersection in the middle. But also it's it takes patience, you know, you've got to try lots of different things. And and there's often a lot of barriers, I think, along the way, particularly for women in mm-hmm. science or STEM yes. in general. So how did you find coming through as a woman into what I imagine has been quite a heavily male-dominated yes. industry overall. Have you faced any other challenges and how have you kind of combated the challenges that you faced? Yeah, so engineering, when people are thinking about it, it's really male-dominated, it's very masculine. And so I actually really appreciate where I'm currently kind of like being very supported and then allow me to actually be a woman, scientist, woman engineer, and sometimes be treated just as everyone else. But when I was doing my major, uh, even though it's a very easy to find a job, like that kind of major, but it was not that obvious for me to actually uh, study that major because when I, my class only had two girls. So it was really challenging for me to actually in that class and feel I belong there. So one of the things I actually keep struggling when I was in college and also even during my PhD study when I was in the U.S. was that 
how to actually uh, speak up and actually feel that I'm still fitting in. So my way back then was actually play small and play invisible. So no makeup, no skirt, no dress, just assume I'm just one of those bro. And so I mean, wow. basketball with boys and then most of the time <laughs> talking about sports <laughs> so that I fit in. And it works quite well in back then because I actually got opportunities to actually really closely working with them and learn how to actually work with guys and and then now I actually start thinking it's I should be doing it very differently and actually I should be actually helping other girls like my own students to let them realize they can be themselves and they can actually still have long hairs they still have makeup they still actually looking good while they actually also doing what they're passionate about and I think this is where currently there's a lot of change going on like the L'Oreal Fellowship this one actually supporting us to actually like just be ourselves while we also be very passionate about what we're doing and they're also plenty of programs from like university level, state level, national level to supporting women scientists, women engineering, and to actually like, I think it's more like career development and also mentorship that help us to reach into the next level and be more comfortable to play big and and dream big as well. Yeah, I love that contrast between the choice to play invisible or play small versus coming out and actually embracing who you are and playing much bigger on the field because I think there are particularly in STEM, but in lots of industries that have been traditionally more male-dominated. I'm sure there are women listening who totally identify with just trying to be invisible and blend into the crowd and be one of the boys. And I think it's so exciting that in this day and age, women aren't necessarily expected to do that anymore in order to succeed. And there are so many wonderful programs and fellowships and scholarships, you know, that allow women to be celebrated in these fields. And you're such a great role model for that. So if any young women who are looking into engineering, biomedical engineering, or just science in general, what would you give them as a piece of advice now? What I would suggest is the top thing is identify some mentors and go and ask them whether they want, they can be your mentor, or even just ask them whether they can have a coffee or lunch together and then they will be really happy to help you and then you will get a very beautiful nice supporting environment and also a support group um, what i found really beautiful like helpful for my career was actually there are plenty of mentors helping me along the way some of them they helping me with more like the technical part some of them more about like mindset shifting how i actually embrace what i'm doing for example like my mentor who gave me this book and uh, the lean-in book uh, she is a professor and she's from germany and now working in australia and uh, a couple years ago she gave me this book and she was telling me that her journey and also now we become really close more, more than like mentor mentee but more like a friend and we sharing all the stories all the troubles and that really i think it's like transformed my career she gave me this book when uh, i was expecting my daughter and then back then i started reading some chapters of this book for example like don't leave until you leave and then when i was taking my maternity leave i was reading like the chapter about like how to have it all making my partner be a real partner but when I was reading this um, back when I was in, I think, probably undergrad or uh, graduate school, I was more focusing on like sitting at the table and how I actually can like speak up. So I think really finding good mentors and also finding this kind of like good books that we can read really helpful and helping us to actually feel like we're not alone and we have plenty of support. And I think most girls really willing to help each other, uh, women helping and empowering each other. That's 
I think that I got a lot of support through this journey and I'm really grateful of those. Absolutely. And I'm so glad and excited that your recommendation for this week, because I was going to ask you that question, is Sheryl Sandberg's book, because Lean In is something that I've turned to over and over and over. And I found that at different times in my life, different chapters are more impactful or I need them more. And I think it was from that book I read about when I was a lawyer and facing that kind of need to come to the table and find my voice and not miss out all the time just because I did I wanted to be likable or because I wanted to, I don't know, fit in and be invisible. There's to, the study from Hewlett Packard about women and men applying for promotions or putting themselves forward for things really stuck with me and how like men apply for promotions when they've got 60% mm-hmm. of the criteria because they can learn 40% on the go. Indeed, yeah. That's logical. Whereas we will wait until 100 or 120% yeah. and we've already put ourselves at a disadvantage and that changed my life. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and it's really powerful to actually reading all those and from someone, sometimes we cannot really directly get mentors, but those books are really helpful and it's kind of like you're talking to someone and having a really deep conversation. And as you said, at different stage, you found something different, like learning different things from the book. Yeah, for sure. Is there like a particular quote or phrase or kind of motivational mantra that's really helped you and guided you to get this far? I think it also changed where it's like a different stage, different time. But what I, at this stage, I'm really like, I think closely resonates with me was actually uh, the one that I have no special talents. I only passionately curious. Uh, you may have heard about this before. It's actually about Albert Einstein. Sometimes it's really funny that he thinks he has no special talents. He's really super, super smart. And I think that's a huge talent compared to many other of us. But I think I don't know whether I have special talents. But whenever I think about his code, I always tell myself, I don't know whether I have special talents or some superpower, but I know for sure is I can be passionately curious. And if I'm like that, and if I find the thing that I'm passionately curious, no matter how hard it is, no matter like how difficult sometimes we just like we're facing all the hurdles and also we have to work really hard and we have to juggle all those things. But we feel that we actually really passionate and we enjoy what we do and we keep continually waking up, feel like energetic again. I love that idea of curiosity wins against everything and just being endlessly asking questions because curiosity is what will lead you to change the world. I mean, look at what you're doing now, the problems you're solving with like intravascular cameras, like that can literally put print, 3D print onto the tip of a needle, like that blows my mind. Thank you. Yeah, it's really like where I found like, because I'm very curious, so I don't even need to limit it to my own area. And that's why I can also go and talk to people who have this cool technology. I can talk to clinicians and find out what exactly is their need because we can invent anything, but we actually want that thing can solve their clinical need that works with their clinical workflow. Mm. And just finally, I'd love to ask, you mentioned that your mentor helped you with the migrant experience, which is another added barrier in a whole new country and culture with language barriers in a scientific, you know, with yep. all this terminology and technical words. Having the added barrier for, you know, women are already facing a lot of challenges moving into science, but do you have any advice if there are also people who have moved from another country to pursue their career? Like, is there anything that helped you kind of find your way in a new culture and and a new country? And actually, how long has it been since you came to Australia? I have been here six years. So it's a very long journey for us to actually feel that we actually can fit in and know, like, actually able to 
like not play small anymore and start feel like actually we can speak up. It took a long time for us to actually do that. And and recently I'm still doing this kind of transformation for my own life, like how I actually can like really embrace that I'm a migrant, I have strong accent, but it doesn't stop me from actually speaking up. I can still sit at the table. I can actually share my story. And one thing I recently did was actually on Twitter to share my story about the struggle I have been through in the past one year. A lot of people only hearing like all the beautiful and the exciting thing we've been doing, how scientists have been solving this problem, that problem. But on the other hand, we actually still like many other migrants, we're facing a lot of challenges, especially with this current really t- challenging time because our parents are actually in, still in China mm-hmm. and all actually we're all relatives, friends, they are there and facing this kind of like struggles and like parents being sick and also we can have no way to go back. All that is really only who have been through that can fully understand that. But the, what's nice, I actually through this journey was I found that one thing really important was actually let people know that if you're struggling, if you're doing something that it's just hard for yourself to digest, other people will be willing to actually help and they will help you to find solutions. And this whole process makes me realize, actually, like there were days that uh, we just don't really know whether we can actually even get exemption to leave the country, whether we can go and see my parents and what can we do with a two-year-old and like all those childcare, all those struggles. And then later on, I was like, okay, I think even though I don't think I'm a role model yet, but if I think about this whole process, what I want to do for my mentee, what I want my mentee to actually get all from actually working with me and learning from this process was if they actually can see me go and speak up, go and actually reach out for help, then they will be feel more empowered to do this. Because if I'm not even doing this, then for them, it will be even harder. So I decide, okay, I will just tell my boss, I'll just go and talk to you like HR in my or institute and figuring out whether there is a solution. And the moment I go and talk to them, I was so surprised because actually the, the executive dean of our entire um, faculty, who's just really, really like a senior position, actually told me, oh, it's totally not a problem at all. If you need to take extended leave, families first. And just like really reassure, like make me feel like, ah, oh, it's it's a huge relief for us. And we realized even though there's a lot of responsibility I have on my shoulder for the research, for all those like supervising students, teaching, all those, but they are supportive to actually let me to do this remotely. So actually the reason we're moving this interview forward is because I need to go back to see my mom and, and support her. I don't know what's going to happen uh, in the next few months and hopefully she will get like recover from this, but whichever way it is, we're like, we want to be there to support them. I think this probably happens to many migrants in this stage of our life. Like we just, with the pandemic, there's so much uncertainty with our life, but we just have to carry on and also uh, finding support and asking for help and reach out because most often people want to help through this process. That's such good advice. I think sometimes in a moment of vulnerability, you actually find more support than you could ever imagine. And you bring a lot of other people along with you on the way because they don't feel alone in their struggles. So it's funny that you don't think you're a role model yet because I think you would be an amazing role model for so many people and such a worthy part of this fellowship. So Taiganxia, You've been really, really amazing. And I can't wait to see what else you do and and wish you all the best as you head back to China and and hope your family are all safe and healthy. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you. Much appreciated. (laughs) 
，谢谢。Thank you. Oh, because I I heard like you have been learning language like in your school as well. Like nice. So like Mandarin or、yeah. that. <laughs> uh, I was in university learning one year Chinese. Oh, you do very good. Wow, nice. I don't think so. But your English is so articulate, so eloquent, and you you think that you have a really strong accent. But I could understand even atherosclerotic. <laughs> It's <laughs> a really hard work. Like, oh, I, I, yeah, I'm so glad actually we have to practice that a lot at work. But yeah, it's really long and yeah, hard to pronounce. And yeah, probably <laughs> I will make your editing part work hard because some of them are like thinking while I'm speaking and then just like uh and then yeah. <laughs> What an absolute sweetheart, Jawen was such a delight. We kept chatting for half an hour after finishing recording. I had so much fun with her. And last but not least, we have another wonderful guest, Doctor. To Olivia Harrison, working on an area close to my heart, not as literally close to my heart as Jawen and her actual intravascular imaging, but close to my heart metaphorically in terms of anxiety. Olivia, who knows what it is like to experience high levels of anxiety, wants to help address some of the gaps in the way individuals identify and perceive their anxiety to better develop treatment and techniques to help manage the symptoms. Olivia has previously done work on the relationship between anxiety and changes in our perception of breathing, and her upcoming studies will investigate treatments such as exercise and pharmacotherapy, and how they relate to improvements in anxiety. I learned so much from this one, and I hope you guys do too. Olivia, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me.、Oh, I'm so excited to have you here, and you're our first international recording, which is wonderful. <laughs> not too international, not too far away. <laughs> Still, I mean, we've only just been let out of our five-kilometer radius, so I feel、True. like, oh my gosh, she's she's an international traveller. <laughs> <laughs> well, from my home office, but sort of. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so so excited about. Just, I think, increasing the visibility for careers in science and showing to any aspiring scientists out there, whether they're they're starting their career for the first time or they're thinking of switching careers, how many different options and pathways and industries and areas of speciality there are. So, can you start by giving us a bit of a layperson's explanation of what you're working on now before we sort of go back to the beginning and trace how you ended up there and its impact for the broader world? Because again, I think that's one of the areas that In our day-to-day life, we forget that so many of the things that make our lives easier or better, in some way, are due to scientists like yourself working away in the background. Yeah, sure. So I'm a neuroscientist, and my predominant focus is on mental health and specifically on anxiety. So I focus on the links between the brain and body, and how the symptoms of anxiety can actually end up in your body. So if you remember back to the last time you might have been really worried about something. And if you think about not only all those thoughts that were racing around in your head, but also how you might have felt. So maybe you felt your heart beat a bit quicker. Maybe your palms were a little bit sweaty. Maybe you felt a little bit lightheaded. And all of these things are because those symptoms end up in our body. And if we don't notice those, or we don't intervene early to stop that happening, it can actually make us feel worse. 
So if we, for instance, breathe a bit faster or change our breathing or really put ourselves in that anxiety state, it makes us feel worse and feeds back to our brain that we should be more anxious about things. So that's what I do. I try and look at that communication between the brain and body and try and understand where it might be going a little bit haywire with anxiety and how we can maybe try and fix that. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm particularly excited to be speaking with you today about this because I probably for the past five or six years, I had a big health event after a trip to Africa and during I had a gut parasite and became very severely overweight. And I think that activated what had been bouts of anxiety in my younger years, but maybe I hadn't been able to identify that and started a string of quite serious panic attacks. And I think anxiety is a bit of a misnomer because you equate it with anxiousness, which is a normal emotion, you know, on the spectrum of emotions. But the first panic attack I had, I think I've spoken about this a couple of times, I called an ambulance because I thought I was having a heart attack. I didn't know it could be physiological, but my arms went numb. My lips went blue. I couldn't breathe. And Mm. when they told me, the paramedics are like, you're just having a panic attack. It's just anxiety. I was like, I'm sorry, I'm dying. Can you please take me to the hospital? (laughs) You're exactly right. This is, you know, it's fantastic that we're talking about this more, but the language that we use can be a little bit confusing because like you say, being anxious and worried about things is totally normal. And what we need to keep us alive, if we took away all the anxiety in the world, the human race wouldn't exist. So we have to have that. And it's a sort of unfortunate that it's the same wording as anxiety when you have an anxiety disorder. And the other thing I really want to speak to there is that that dismissive language of, oh, it's only anxiety or it's just in your head is really, really misleading because those symptoms are real. They are happening. They're not just in your head. They are in your body. You are having that racing heart. You're having those lips turning blue. They're not fake. So what it shows is that the brain is just really, really powerful And it can cause those things just from the thoughts that are the origination instead of maybe a pathology, like something wrong with your heart in the first place. So it's always really important to get those things checked and to make sure that there's not an underlying pathology. But it doesn't mean those things aren't real. They're really real. Yeah, absolutely. And I I really just, once I sort of started to understand the physiological and, and really tangible symptoms of anxiety, I suddenly just regretted how many years I'd spent telling friends who had anxiety when they'd be having an episode or or just having a flare up. You know, I'd be like, just get a massage, just calm down, as if that would do anything for their, you know, psychological state. But the problem is those things don't even feel relaxing or feel enjoyable yeah. when you're in a really heightened, anxious state. So it's it's so wonderful that there are conversations happening and, and research into these connections. Once you sort of do make those links neurologically, what do you do with the results of that? Is it to tailor the treatment programs? Is it to put into a database? How are we, you know, using that information? Yeah, that's a really important question. So what we've done up to now is just try and identify where it might be going wrong. So that's what we've been doing with our recent research. And what we've seen is that people with slightly higher levels of anxiety, perfectly normal people with no diagnoses, but sort of average levels of anxiety, 
what we do is we tend to actually tune out of our bodies a little bit. Even though we think we're really hyper aware and we think we're tuning in, we actually are a little bit less sensitive to changes in our body. And we think that can contribute to that sort of perpetuated cycle where you have anxious thoughts and then you have symptoms in your body and then you have more anxious thoughts. So now what we do with that information is we try and see how treatments that we already have that we know work most of the time, what are they doing and who do they work for? So the two things we're focusing on are exercise and also anti-anxiety medication because we know that both of those things work really well for lots of people but not for everyone. And we don't really know what behaviors they're targeting or what they're allowing you to do to help improve those anxiety symptoms. So the next step is what do our current treatments do and who do they work for? And then we think about how do we make that better? How do we tailor it for each person? How do we really think about what an individual needs and how we can help them the best instead of just giving a blanket, or oh, just go for a run and you'll feel better. Sort of thing. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I, I have been told that quite a few times. And in the height of anxiety, I mean, you really just often don't feel like leaving the house at all. So No, exactly. So can we figure out what is the essence of what's improving there? Is it the feeling of accomplishment going for a run? Is it that sort of feeling of control you get where you have these symptoms in your body, but you know what's causing them? You know you've gone for a run and you and you can slow down and make them go away or you can speed up and make them feel a little bit more intense. That feeling of control. So, or is it just that if we give our body these positive symptoms, do we start to retrain our negative thoughts towards them? So we just want to know what it is and then how do we break that down to maybe the first baby step of someone who really doesn't want to leave the house or who doesn't want to do that? What can we do that will really resonate with that person? Because it's different for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the hardest things is how it's really easy to grade a broken arm or, you know, in severity, like the spectrum of injury is quite visible and tangible. But with mental health, it's so much harder to see and to measure. And and so I, I'm so grateful and excited that there are neuroscientists out there like you actually working on this so that we can understand it a lot better and, and move forward. What I think is fascinating here is that, you know, I often will say, like, don't even worry about it, guys. It's not neuroscience, except that you're an actual neuroscientist. So how does one end up as a neuroscientist? Have you always been interested in it? I'm Something we're really fascinated at this show about is the nonlinear nature of people's pathways and that, you know, you may be someone who woke up at five and knew you wanted to do this, but it's likely that it took lots of diversions and tangents along the way. So how did you get here? Definitely. Mine, mine definitely took a few twists and turns, but all exciting and all made me who I am now. So growing up, I was always really interested in sport. I loved sport, did as much as I could, anything I could get my hands on. And so I knew that I really wanted to study that at university. I wanted to be involved as much as I could. So I studied physical education and exercise science. Really? Yeah, I did. I was a PE student. But I also wanted to do brain control of this. I was interested in a bit more than just the body. I wanted to know about the brain as well. So at university, I studied two degrees, exercise science and neuroscience. And it was really cool because it let me do hardcore neuroscience, cellular stuff, understanding the brain. And then also you go into the exercise science world and it's messy and you just <laughs> do things and you stick probes on people and you just get on with it and they're brilliant. 
So very different to the controlled neuroscience environment, single cell recordings, things like that. So I got the real full spectrum in my undergraduate degrees. And then I was always interested, like I said, in sports. So I moved into high performance sport and I wanted to know what can help athletes. How can we make them perform better? How can we get the most out of them? But as an athlete myself, I always, always noticed my breathing when I was exercising. Always. It was something that I felt not only was there, but it was also a little bit scary when I was really operating at my max. And I always thought, you know, what's going on here? It can't just be our body limiting all of these sort of physicality when we do exercise, but there's got to be a bit more than that. So I went over to the University of Oxford to do my PhD and I did it in neuroscience, but I looked at the perception of breathing in the brain. So I was really interested in where do we perceive this? How do we perceive it as a threat? What happens with people who have chronic lung diseases and also what happens in athletes? So I did a lot of work on that to try and understand how athletes might process those symptoms from their body differently, which is really cool. And what we saw is that people who do lots of sport are a bit better at predicting what's going to happen to their body. Their brain is a bit more ready for what happens because they've got lots of experience with it. So that was really interesting. And then I was still interested in sort of that more holistic mental health side of things. You know, everyone's after that 2%. How do we make an athlete 2% better so that they can, you know, perform at their best? And I was kind of like, what if they're having a bad day? You know, what if, what if it's just not gone well in their personal life? So I always thought there should be a little bit more than that. And then sort of slowly it sort of dawned on me that it was exercise for mental health. How do we use this as a tool to help people? And that really took lots of years of education training to circle back to exercise, but in that scheme of mental health. But all along the way, it's been such an incredible journey, learning about all these different fields. And the beauty of neuroscience is that you do anatomy, physiology, psychology, you do the whole shebang. And so I'm sort of broadly across all of these disciplines, but in a really integrative way, really keen on the whole person and how we can help them. That's so exciting to hear because I think an, another thing we talk about a lot in this show is the unlikely unions of areas of study that, you know, because you silo careers so much when you're, at, you know, in high school, we kind of think of things as very delineated categories, you don't think that you could merge exercise science with neuroscience. You know, I mean, they're both sciences, but you just don't think of, you think, oh, well, that's a PE teacher over there. And that's a neuroscientist in a lab over there. And it's so exciting that you can forge a pathway that merges lots of seemingly different areas and, and that careers exist in those gray areas in between. I think very much so. I think they're, it's also so exciting that you can do that now. You know, this idea of a scientist as a guy in a white coat with a test tube that we used to really <laughs> think of. It just doesn't exist anymore. We do our own things. We create new knowledge. And I think being in a field like neuroscience is fantastic because it is new. And so it's really exciting. The opportunities are really boundless and we're not constrained by some of the other really pure sciences and the way that everything has always been done. You know, things just change rapidly in neuroscience. And so we just all race to keep up and try and find something new. It's really exciting. It must be so wonderful to be in an area like I just cannot believe. I mean, we have made such leaps and bounds in scientific technology and general technology, but the fact that we know what's the percentage of the brain's function that we actually know about, it's like a <laughs> tiny minority of what the brain does. We're at like 1% knowledge, which is like, wow, there's 99% left. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's really cool. It's this, yeah, there's so much left to understand. And 
I think that barrier, like you say, we don't have that readout like you do when you have a broken arm. It's easy to grade those things. To see what's happening in the human brain as it functions is really challenging and really exciting. And it's tucked away and encased in your head. So it's really hard to see. But that's what makes it, yeah, really exciting. And, you know, I work with lots of anatomists and they're much more happy in a controlled environment where they're just working on a brain maybe that's already from someone who's deceased or whatever. They're like, it's much easier if it's just just there, you know, rather than <laughs> doing anything. <laughs> so, just yeah. quantifiable and exactly, measurable exactly. and, and it's, it's a known it entity. Yeah. <laughs> and I can see it and it's great. Whereas it's so much more challenging working with human living people and they're messy and they're all these different systems working together, but that's the beauty of it. Oh, so exciting. I actually remember when I was starting psychology and trying to, you know, find the right match because, you know, you you often experiment with lots of different psychologists to find the right fit for you. And it, but you have to tell the story every time and give all the context. And I just wish that there was a way I could just like download my brain and just give it to them and be like, so here's my file. You just consult it by yourself. <laughs> would be so easy. So can you invent that, please? Because that would be amazing. (laughs) (laughs) I'll put it on the to-do list. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So you mentioned like there are a lot of areas of science where there is still a lot of traditions or conventions or the way things have always been done. And I think STEM as a an area of, you know, pr- vocation has traditionally been quite male-dominated. There are still a lot of misconceptions about, you know, the male in a white coat with a test tube or an engineer being on a construction site. And have you experienced any kind of barriers or obstacles in science as a woman? And are there any tips or advice that you would pass on to women who are aspiring to a career in STEM? Yeah, that's a really fantastic question. I think I've been really lucky. I've been incredibly well supported by my family. I've had the most fantastic education and we were really encouraged to go into STEM subjects. So I know I'm I'm really one of the lucky ones. Um, and I think through experience, I've really seen that it's about finding your strengths as a scientist and using those as best you can, not trying to conform to someone else's version of a scientist. And I think the pandemic's actually really helped us with that because we've seen some of the really active voices communicating this really important science that's let us fight this COVID-19 pandemic. And we've seen how important it is that it's not just someone in a lab. We have to be able to communicate that. We have to be able to run teams and support everyone towards a shared scientific goal. And that involves so many different people and all their different strengths. So it's about finding what you're really comfortable doing and how to make that work for you. So is it that you really love supporting a team? Is it that you love getting everyone together and working on shared ideas? Or is it that you love talking about it to your friends and your family or maybe even the wider community and you're really good at it? You can tell people really complicated scenarios and information and you can make it really easy to understand. That's a huge strength and something that's really valued in today's STEM, not just doing the maths equations or running the test tubes 
in the lab. There's so much more than that. Yeah, that's so good to know. Have you found that, I, I know that, you know, one of the things I talk about in terms of building your path here is having the right neighborhood, like the right support network and different mentors. And often it will be just one person and one conversation that exposes you to a whole new direction that your scientific career can take. And, and that can be other women to help you as a woman in science or male scientists as counterparts. Have you found mentors really helpful and how do you find them? Have you had lots of different mentors or how do you kind of get exposure to new and different scientists? Also a really great question. I tend to really try and say yes to lots of opportunities that come up. My Kiwi accent, yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's more impactful when you say it in a Kiwi accent. (laughs) Exactly. So, yeah, having exposure and not being afraid to take that leap and go somewhere new for different experiences because every lab is run differently, every university is run differently, every company that runs scientific testing is run differently. So, you know, grasping those opportunities and, and talking to people is definitely one of the ways forward. And then I've had lots of wonderful mentors right from school. I had a really great teacher who I could talk to about what I thought I wanted to do, but wasn't quite sure. And she introduced me to someone who could then help me make some decisions about university, but really just reassure me that it wasn't set in stone. I could change or you can just try this to start with and see how it goes. So I've always had really fantastic mentors and building that community around you is really, really important. I'm really lucky to have a fantastically supportive husband who's also a neuroscientist. So, Oh my gosh, two of you. <laughs> yep. I have actually 3D prints of our brains just over there. The- <laughs> that is amazing. On, oh, please do. Your pillow talk would be so flippant intellectual. Here we are. <gasps> Mine's pink and his is blue. That is amazing. Oh, my God. How did you get that done? <laughs> we, um, I scanned both of our brains and then sent them off to the 3D printing. <laughs> of course you did. Of course you did. <laughs> oh, my gosh. As I get older, it's funny how, like, at school there was such a, not a stigma, but just the, some a bit of a social attachment to being a nerd right? and I've always been like super nerdy but there's always been that side of me that was like trying to be a jock and I kind of suppress the nerdy side but the older I get the more I'm like being a nerd is so freaking cool you have an actual 3d print of your brain <laughs> what like that is so amazing <laughs> I know but I'm totally the same at school I loved science and things but you I think in an Australia and New Zealand society we kind of try and offset it by doing sport yeah. to make us cool <laughs> Totally. Yeah. yeah, it's like the compromise. It's like, yes, I'm good at, you know, in the classroom, but I can totally kick a football around so I'm fine. Exactly. You can accept me into, into exactly. your group. Exactly. And I think <laughs> there's something to be aware of and something we need to address and that people maybe who are less interested in sport maybe find it a little bit harder to express their wholesome nerdiness. Um, and that should be really celebrated and appreciated. When we see how important science is, I think that's one of the wonderful things that we have to take out of all of this craziness is that science is really important and it can do amazing things for us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the rise of podcasts and YouTube channels and digital media to actually spread the word of what people are doing, like that visibility of what science is actually related to in our lives has been so good because you you didn't used to know these things. You couldn't hear from people who had forged pathways and therefore you couldn't visualize a career or, or even visualize the impact that other 
other scientists are having on your life. And I think I, even from these conversations, there's only been five and it's already changed my perception of how important it is to get younger people into these industries and get them excited about them exactly. rather than, you know, I think I didn't even know what neuroscience was when I was finishing school. Exactly. Let alone, it's, it's not really a know. school topic, but it's really cool. <laughs> I'm holding my brain. It's really cool. <laughs> it's so cool. <laughs> Do you have a favorite motivational quote or mantra that's kind of guided you through your journey that you'd like to pass on? So not a motivational quote, but I heard this just recently on the radio by a physiotherapist, uh, Dr. Tanya Clifton-Smith in New Zealand just recently. And I thought it just beautifully encapsulated what I'm trying to do. And it is, if in doubt, breathe out. And it's really important because it's sort of tied up exactly with the research that I do that when we get worried, we can basically just inadvertently hold our breath. And that can cause yes. all of these things and cause us to feel so much worse and really thinking about it early and noticing it and really just thinking, okay, out slowly because we often hold our breath at the top of our breath. So just thinking mm -hmm. if in doubt, breathe out. And that really centers us and, and helps our brain to relax our body. So I thought, just thought that beautifully captured what I was trying to do. Oh, that's such a good one. It, and it's so surprising how often you'll find yourself in the middle of not breathing and be like, oh, wow, like how am any of my organs supposed to function right now without <laughs> oxygen? <laughs> exactly. We actually do it when we answer emails too. Just hold our breath. It's called email apnea. We just... Stop that's a thing. That's a thing. Yeah. I think it's like deep in concentration. It's yeah, like, <gasps> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And no matter, it's amazing. No matter what you ask someone to do, we're really good at synchronizing our breathing with it. So if you ask someone to tap their fingers, lots of people end up going. Ah, 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 ah. So we do it. Oh. We, with everything we do, we tend to synchronize. So just being aware that sometimes that can maybe make us feel not so good. Or if, if we wonder why we're just feeling a little bit off or a little bit lightheaded, or we can't quite grasp that thought, it's just, okay, breathe out and we'll see if that helps. This is the weirdest admission I've ever made, but I've noticed like I'm a mildly OCD. Like there are certain things that I really like I really prefer the volume to be on an even number oh, in the car. Totally. You know? Oh like, right? It should be illegal right. otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But I've noticed that when I'm running, so I'm training for a half marathon and getting your breathing right is so important. But because I wanted my in-breaths and my out-breaths to be four steps because that's even, I would force my breathing into the four like yeah. into the four and four, which didn't work for my body. Mm -hmm. And I had to adjust it. And I was like, okay, I'll do two and two. And then that wasn't enough. And then, so I was like, damn it, it's got to be three and three. And I hate threes. <laughs> I have one piece of advice for you on this. Taylor Swift is excellent to run to. Right. Really great beat for your breathing. And it's just, yeah. Every marathon I ran to, lots of training to T-Swift. Right. Oh, my God. You've changed my life. <laughs> my gift to you. Yeah. As well as all the research you're doing <laughs> into anxiety, but whatever. Final question. Do you have a recommendation of a film or a book or a show? And I think importantly, something that maybe isn't related to your career that gives you the distance and the break to kind of stay fresh 
just something that's made you really happy, that's made you excited. Yeah, definitely. I love baking. It is just one of the things that makes me happy. I love making kiwi baking, especially because it's so novel. And when I was in Oxford and I lived in Switzerland for a while and they were like, what is this? And so (laughs) it makes me so happy. And um, so shows like the Great British Bake Off, or I think in Australia, you have the Great Australian Bake Off, and they're just back for this next season. And I just find them so relaxing and creative and wonderful. And this real celebration of sharing something nice between people and trying to create something just for the sake of eating it. I just think it's lovely. (laughs) Yeah. I love, you know, encouraging people to do things that aren't necessarily productive, like puzzles, you know, you spend all this time on the puzzle and then you break it at the end. And the same with cooking. It's like you spend all this time making this thing and then you just eat it at the end. Exactly. But it's still fun. (laughs) Exactly. But I, I think for me as well, baking is such about sharing. It's about enjoying it with other people and that social connection that you have. And so we actually had to buy a chest freezer for me to put all of my baking. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and it makes Commitment. me really happy to like, I make slice. So it makes me really happy to like cut it into like nice pieces and they're all even. And then my poor husband has to eat all the scraps and the scratchy corners that don't look nice. Yeah. Well, obviously there's got to be an even number. Exactly. And got to be perfectly symmetrical. Exactly. Duh. Exactly. And the ones that are not fit for leaving the house, he yeah. <laughs> is happy to scoop up. Well, as long as no one sees them. Exactly. Fine. Exactly. Don't exist <laughs> if they go into his tummy. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you so much. A very, very big congratulations on the fellowship as well. I did mean to ask, actually, is there anything in particular in your research that this wonderful fellowship from L'Oreal has allowed you to do that you might not otherwise have been able to do? What I'm using this for is to buy equipment. And that's really helpful because not many funding bodies want to buy equipment because then you have the ownership problems and all of that as well. And so it's just such a wonderful release to be able to go, no, I need that and I can buy that. And that's really helpful. <laughs> so now my students can run multiple tasks at once and it just makes everyone's life so much easier. So I'm incredibly grateful to just have that freedom and be able to say, what do we actually need? And we can spend it on that. Oh, how exciting. Well, congratulations. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much for joining and, and thank you so much for the incredible work that you're doing. No worries. Thanks and all the best. Okay, well, I'm pretty speechless still after hearing from these five outstanding women over the past two episodes. I really think even if you have no interest in ever working in science, their work and the way it could change the world for the better in so many different ways is just incredibly interesting and so inspiring. I truly hope this series does encourage and inspire some future leading scientists to push on with their yay in STEM. As always, I'd love to hear what you think or anything you've learned. It's always so great to know what the Yayborhood thinks of anything new or a bit different like a mini series. I hope you guys have enjoyed these last two. They came a little bit hard and fast at the end of the year, but I think we should do a couple more of these. So if there's a theme you're interested in or a group of people you want to hear from, we can definitely look at that in 2022. Oh my gosh, gross. That's the first time I've said that word. <laughs> and if you have any specific questions you'd like me to pass on to any of our guests from this series, please flick me a DM or email and I can reach out to them and make that happen. I'm sure they would be so delighted to speak to any aspiring 
young scientists out there. Thank you again to the wonderful team at L'Oreal also for their incredible For Women in Science Fellowship and the way it enables this kind of groundbreaking and innovative work that will benefit so many of us or our loved ones in time. We've got just one more episode left for this year. Oh, that has flown by and it's such a goodie. So I will see you all next week and hope you're seizing your yay.